brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Rock me like a hurricane, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And if we've learned anything over the years, it's that the system will stop at nothing to keep power, control the narrative, and silence anyone whose presence disrupts their game plan. Of course, there are many examples we could look at, but few have faced the wrath like the late, great Wilhelm Reich. Not only did he discover what he called organ energy, a glowing, blue, biocosmic life energy that permeates from microbes, plants, animals, and nature itself, he also created devices like the organ accumulator that had major healing and immune-boosting effects, as well as the cloud buster, which could manipulate the organ energy in the air to cause rain or even make a desert. And not only that, but he also noticed an increase in UFO activity during some cloudbuster trials, wrote a book on that, wrote a book on fascism, and spoke out frequently about the repressive society we're participating in. As you might imagine, Reich's work landed him in prison until the day he died and his books banned from interstate commerce and burned in mass. One has to wonder if he was really just a crackpot and his work had no value, why such effort to eradicate it when it could just die out on its own? Well, luckily his work does live on today with the bright and bold folks willing to carry the torch, and few are as dedicated or as knowledgeable as today's guest, Dr. James DeMeo. James formally studied the Earth, Atmospheric, and Environmental Sciences at Florida International University and the University of Kansas, where he earned his Ph.D. in 1986. At KU, he openly undertook the first graduate-level natural scientific research specifically focused on Wilhelm Reich's controversial discoveries, subjecting those ideas to rigorous testing with positive verification of the original findings. Dr. DeMeo subsequently undertook drought-related field research in the arid American Southwest, Egypt, Israel, and Sub-Saharan Africa. His published works include dozens of articles and papers, as well as several books, like his newly expanded and revised edition of the Organ Accumulator Handbook, and his most recent release, The Dynamic Ether of Cosmic Space, Correcting a Major Error in Modern Science. 
Of course, such work has seen James blacklisted and ostracized from the inner circle of academia, but the work continues on at the Oregon Biophysical Research Lab, which he founded in 1978. Well, he certainly knows a thing or two about a thing or two, and I'm psyched to have him here. The suppressed science scientist, the Oregon and Ether advocate, and a bona fide first-hand cloudbuster. James, welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you, Greg, for that glowing endorsement. I appreciate it. Yes, I try. And I mean, you've definitely done some respectable work. And I appreciate you being here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. You were kind enough to send me signed copies of both the Oregon Accumulator Handbook and the Dynamic Ether of Cosmic Space. Very much appreciated. Loved them both. And I think the audience here is at least a little familiar with those terms. But let me ask you about the relationship between them. I've heard you call ether a sort of cosmic life energy, and life energy is the term used to describe organ. What differentiates these two energies from one another? Because they do seem pretty similar to a layman. Well, both originated from completely different starting points. The idea of cosmic ether as a, as a substrate in the universe for transmission of light waves, that goes back to the 1700s, actually, the, the necessity for a medium to explain the wave nature of light. So, for example, if you have sound waves, they wave in the air. If you have water waves, they wave in the water. So light has a distinct set of wave properties that can be reflected, refracted, interfered, interference. You can make standing waves and so forth. So what's the medium through which light is traveling that allows it to express these wave-like properties? And that idea persisted all the way into the early 1900s when some of the first instruments, optical instruments, were developed by which one could evaluate for the existence of the cosmic ether. And the famous experiment of Michelson-Morley, everybody knows that's in all the textbooks. And it, the way it's described in the textbooks is totally bogus because they say Michelson-Morley got a negative result and therefore space is empty. And this brought in, in the aftermath of that error in the early textbooks, it brought in a whole series of, of new theories, such as Einstein's relativity, the Big Bang theory, ideas about black holes and things that are, are very popular today or the dominant theories today are challenged at their basic foundational level by the existence of a cosmic ether. In fact, Einstein wrote that one of the, the basic starting assumptions of his relativity theory is that the ether cannot exist, at least a material ether with properties that can be attributed to it. By contrast, the idea of life energy well, first of all, it's an ancient concept, the idea of, of life energy. Almost every culture has some kind of a term about it. You find all kinds of scientific experiments going back to Mesmer, uh, Hahnemann with homeopathy, some aspects of early folklore and agriculture and so on speak about life energy and that living things have their own specific biological energy. And it's not something that's biochemical. It's something that really is like a radiant energy field, which has a powerful biological influence. Now, Reich was unique in that he, uh, he did more research on this concept of life energy, proving that it was a real thing, a tangible, experimentally demonstrated thing. 
And much in the same way that the early ether experimenters in the early 1900s, they also got positive results. But it was a small result. It wasn't a huge result as everybody expected. Now, Michelson-Morley detected an ether drift speed of that the Earth was moving through the ether of space, and this could be detected with these optical interferometers, and he detected a speed of uh, something between uh, or approaching 5 to 7.5 kilometers per second. Now, that's a pretty respectable speed. If I said I had a, an airplane that would move 5 or 7.5 kilometers per second, that would out, outpace even the best high-performance jets that are here today used by the various militaries. And later, another scientist, Dayton Miller, who was the top research scientist of his day, he was a mainstream guy, he was the top of his field, president of the American Optical Society, the American Acoustical Society, member of the National Academy of Sciences, and, and you know, just on and on with all the awards and, and memberships that he had earned over the years for his work. He actually detected an 11.5 kilometer per second ether drift speed, and he did so by going up high on a mountain, Mount Wilson specifically. And the interesting thing was is that, that there's been a number of ether experimenters over the years who have gone up high on mountains, or at least at various elevations, and the, the higher up that they went, the faster was the ether drift speed that they could detect. And this, if you think of the Earth like, you know, just make a fist and push it through the air, you can feel a breeze as you move your fist through the air. But the speed of the wind that you're experiencing there is slowed down next to the skin surface. So you, you wind up with these edge effects, these skin surface or surface effects where the ether flows more slowly close to the Earth's surface because it's a material ether. And it's like water moving in a pipe. It moves slowest where it comes into physical contact with the pipe due to friction. So the ether has a low speed close to the earth and a higher speed the higher up you go in altitude. And that aspect was ignored by all of the, the naysayers of those ether drift experiments because it implied that the ether was a very material thing. And it's hard to know the psychology behind why this happened, but all of those textbooks examples where they say the ether was never detected or Michelson-Morley proved the ether did not exist, they claim that there was no result at all. They say it was a null result. But if you go to their original paper, their 1887 paper, which they published that got everybody to look at their work, they say very clearly they got this 5 to 7.5 kilometers per second result and that it wasn't it wasn't the expected higher velocity of something like two to 300 kilometers per second. So because it was a small effect, the world of conventional science moved on and dismissed it and became followers of the Einstein theory of empty space and a dead universe, as I like to say, empty space and a dead universe. And meanwhile, Wilhelm Reich, working in that early part of the 20th century, he is reading all these things about the ether has been disproven. All the mainstream people are saying the ether doesn't exist. And Reich is saying this is, was a disaster for theoretical science in some of his later writings. And had the ether been accepted at that point, he might have called it a biological ether or that the ether had biological influences. So instead, he gave it a new name. He called it orgone energy to preserve it as a organic life energy. 
But, but if you look at the properties of these two phenomena, the ether of space and the foregone energy of Reich, the life energy, they are both very similar. They're both are ubiquitous phenomenon that they exist in all, all of space. They fill all of space. It has certain physical influences. The orgone energy accumulator that Reich developed inside the accumulator, the properties of the space inside it are altered because it's like a concentration of the ether, a concentration of life energy. So you get certain kinds of strange phenomenon happening inside, such as a slight spontaneous increase in temperature, which, as Wright correctly pointed out, was a violation of the second law of thermodynamics, that the electrical density inside the organ accumulator is higher. And this is proven by experiments with a standard static electroscope, which will take longer to discharge its accumulated charge than the identical electroscope just placed a meter away from the accumulator in the same room. And then you got the biological boosting effects. I've done all kinds of experiments with plants and seed growing and was able to show a fairly systematic effect of about 37% increase in the growth of mung bean seeds and a few other plant species when you sprout them inside of an organ accumulator as compared to an identical group of bean seeds kept in the same temperature environment and so forth under a cardboard box. So the cardboard didn't have any real effect upon the, the seeds, but the organ accumulator most certainly did. And that particular experiment reflects what the medical profession, some of the doctors and other healers who use the organ accumulator, showing that it speeds the healing of burns, that it can, in many cases, disintegrate tumors of people who have a cancer, that it overall boosts the immune system. That's the best way to describe it such that any kind of disorder that's based upon an immune system dysfunction, with the exception of a few exceptions, which I list in my book on the organ accumulator, are benefited. So I've known all kinds of people since you know, before I wrote that book and after I wrote that book who've written me with thanks about a variety of things that they've had going wrong with their health and were benefited by sitting in the accumulator. It's a device you sit inside. It doesn't plug into the wall or anything. It's just, it accumulates the energy from the background medium of space or of the atmosphere. So it's a passive device, no electrical plugs, no transistors or coils or anything like that. It just sits there and it, it functions by virtue of how the life energy is attracted to all of matter. But certain kinds of matter, such as high dielectric materials, attract and hold on to that charge. And they will, under those influences, create an electrostatic field. That's how you define a dielectric material, is its capacity to hold an electrical charge, an electrostatic charge. And with, when you layer that with a conductor like steel or steel wool, which is something that attracts the organ energy also, but it cannot hold on to it. So it doesn't develop an electrostatic charge, but it, it might develop a little bit of a magnetic property. And what you find is that when you layer those things in sheets, a layer of steel wool, a layer of sheep's wool, which has got a, a dielectric property due to the lanolin content of the sheep's wool, and you, you make layers of that, one after the other, flat layers. And then the inside of the accumulator has a ferromagnetic sheet metal, which is you know thin gauge, something like 26 gauge, 
just enough to give it sturdiness and support. And then the exterior of all those layers is some kind of a organic material with a sturdiness, such as a mason board or something like that, or insulation board, which is then painted with a high dielectric shellac material. We use this bullseye shellac, which is very natural shellac material. And of course, each panel has a framework, like a picture frame, going around to just give it physical support. And then these panels are organized like, like the six sides of a box. One of the larger panels you put on hinges, so it's a door. And then you have a window in that door so you can look out and get some air. And when you sit in these things, I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. There's no, no magic to it, but it's just based on the properties of these layered materials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great breakdown. And I think that is one of the weirdest aspects of the accumulator is that you just don't plug it in. It's really just building a box with alternating layers of metal and non-metal organic material. And that's enough to concentrate this energy just from the air, just from the environment. And you mentioned this working really well on burns. And I have this quote in my notes I believe from a German doctor, I won't even try to pronounce this name, but he said, failure to use the organ accumulator in the case of severe burns constitutes medical malpractice, which is a pretty bold statement, but that's true. If the medical community is ignoring something that works, you got to call a spade a spade. I just wanted to add that in, but all of this context for how the accumulator works and how it's made using no outside power it does make this organ energy seem very plentiful and abundant, yet we still have a hard time moving the needle of acceptance. How can we approach our more skeptical friends and family with this? I mean, what can we point them to so that they can entertain something like organ energy or ether? Because there are a few places we can get a glimpse of it. You write about the dancing dot phenomenon where you're in a dark room, but you can see a little bit of glow. And then, of course, there are some natural places in nature that are relatively untouched by humanity. And sometimes this energy charge builds up there, too. And they have an exceptionally blue look or glow to them. And these are good examples. These are good points. But for such an abundant energy, it seems hard to confirm. Where should we tell people to look if they want to see or sense this? Well, it's an energy that, as Reich argued, underlays cognition and perception. It is the medium through which we, we feel connection to the natural world. So, for example, a good way to contrast the bioenergetic feelings is firstly to realize that the organ energy has different states of activity or qualitative states to it. So, for example, the the energy that you would find in a forest area or a, in a dry condition in the Pacific Redwood forests, for example. People talk about hugging trees. Well, they feel something. I felt this too. You go up ne near some of these big redwoods and you, you lean against them. And my gosh, you feel this radiant energy. And that's what you feel inside the orgone accumulator. Same thing. Some people claim healing effects from, from doing that. I can't speak to that because most of the reports are just very subjective. But the kind of reports that I'm, I deal with in my book, and by the way, I give full instructions on how to build these, but the reports that I'm quoting from and that I'm citing to build the argument are, are published articles in research journals by medical 
and other health professionals and serious PhD level scientists. I'm, I'm a classically trained PhD scientist. I've taught in different departments of geography and geology and so forth. My specialty was deserts and desert, desertification, which is how I got most decidedly interested in Reich's work. But the discovery of the orgone accumulator, I mean, one of Reich's associates, to make another quote, he said that the orgone accumulator is the most important discovery in the history of medicine, bar none. And I think he's right, because you look at all the, the crazy things, the deadly things that are going on in the hospitals today. I mean, they are chopping off women's breasts, healthy breasts, on the basis of genetic hocus pocus, based upon, oh, you might get cancer. So let's cut them off now. I mean, can you imagine if men were told that about their testicles? You know, oh, you might get testicle cancer. So let's cut them off now. (laughs) I don't think you'd have a riot. You know, this wouldn't happen. But women somehow are lining up to have this kind of thing done to themselves or their daughters. It is sick, absolutely sick. Or now, God forbid, you know, they're, they're castrating children in the hospitals on this transgender stuff. It is totally insane, totally, absolutely insane. The medical profession has gone nuts. And it's part of the reason why I thought they went nuts when they burned the Bernreich's books. You know, a lot of the medical doctors and psychiatrists stood up and applauded when Reich went to prison and his books were burned. And, you know, he isn't the only medical heretic to run afoul of the food and drug people and the medical licensing boards. So I always advise people to stay away from the hospitals, especially if you're sick. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. You know, I mean, if you get hit by a car, okay, yeah, these guys are good for repairing, sewing you up or whatever. There's a lot of expertise there. But when it comes to degenerative illness, they haven't a clue. And the reason is, is that they threw out the discovery of the life energy back in 1957 when Reich was thrown in prison. The, the discovery of the life energy was something that was part of the, of the historical progress of science as it developed step by step to understand biology in the areas of biology and medicine. And suddenly this sledgehammer came down, bam, which said, no, you cannot touch the issue of life energy. It is taboo. It is forbidden. And it was thrown out. So much like the ether, how the ether changed physics, they threw out the ether and now you got empty space and you got a dead universe. So they reference mystical things that nobody has ever seen, like Einstein's space time, curved space time. Has anybody seen that, made a photograph of it? No, it's all totally hypothetical or black holes. I mean, they got one very bogus kind of thing that recently was released with a big hoopla in the press, but. You know, black holes, they're everywhere. Every time they find a gravitational anomaly, they stick a hypothetical black hole in there. The whole of science has gone off into a cul-de-sac, in my opinion, following the premature dismissal of the ether and following the the sledgehammer uh, approach to obliterating Wilhelm Reich's work. Yeah. Could have been a whole different world. It's really sad to see that. And it's just, I am kind of awestruck at how it even happens. I mean, the papers are published, the data is there, the results are verified. It should be pretty standard science at that point. I, I understand it upsets the financial apple cart of some corporate interests, but 
I would assume, I, I think it's just, it seems like a huge undertaking to suppress something that has been verified. It is. And of course, the establishment or the orthodox, I shouldn't say orthodox, the, the conventional thinkers have the media on their side. They have the internet people on their side. You know, right now, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and so on, they're organizing, well, they're already suppressing conservative speech. Maybe you heard that J.R. Rowling, the woman who wrote all those books on Harry Potter, she made some Twitter comment two days ago about how she thought that the transgender men are taking over women's sports and invading women's private space, and she didn't think that was a good idea. And she's been banned now. She's been totally deplatformed just for saying something simple like that. So, I mean, we're losing freedom of speech on a whole variety of things. But the fact of the matter is, is that the science and the medical system has been practicing censorship on not just Reich and medical things, but look at the CO2 theory. The CO2 theory is a biochemical, it's like biochemical medicine. The solar theory of climate changes appears rational and real because it's, it's verified. And we've got real climate changes, but they happened, you know, over hundreds of years, not something just uh, recently from industrial CO2. And yet, how many of the media venues allow anybody who is a critic of the CO2 theory to come on for an interview? Well, they don't. It's totally censored out. Oh, you got to go to the internet to get that kind of info. And even there, it's difficult unless you know what to look for. People go to Wikipedia, which is the worst misinformation website one can go to. A lot of, a lot of the old style professors like me, you cite Wikipedia and you're going to get a flunking grade. Well, when I was still teaching in the universities, this was before internet really got going. But I always mention that in my, in my seminars that anybody who relies on Wikipedia is going to be terribly ignorant of what's going on in the real world. And with respect to Reich, all the pages on Willem Reich are totally filled with slander, the same kind of slander and nastiness that was appearing in the mainstream media back in the 1940s and 50s when Reich was making his work in the United States. You know, he, he fled Europe to get away from the, the Nazis who had put him on their death list. But the communists also put him on their death lists. In 1936, they, the common turn was going after him. They wanted to arrest him and send him off to the gulag. And he had been thrown out of the International Psychoanalytic Association. His theories, his ideas upset everybody. And whenever you find somebody who's like that, whose ideas are upsetting everybody, left, right, center, whatever, well, you probably got a truth teller probably got somebody who's really important and they're onto something. And that was one of the things that attracted me to Reich uh, originally back in the 19, uh, I guess it was around 1969, 70, when I first read uh, one of Reich's books. Today, it's available as Selected Writings. That's one of the interesting books that is a good starting place for people to read about Reich. Right on, right on. Yes, I am attracted to those kind of personalities as well. And you mentioned the study and experiment that you did with seeds and got 37% increase in seed growth with the ones that were germinated inside the accumulator. There's also another study we can look at with rats, I believe, that's pretty impressive. Tell people about that so that they can kind of get an idea of what has been verified with these devices. 
Yeah, laboratory mice. Reich did a, a very elaborated experiment on that where he took one group of, these are cancer mice that are being experimented with. They call them technically the CH4 mouse. It's something where they're inbred sufficiently a number of times that they develop mammary tumors usually within the, the first couple of weeks of life. And it's a, almost 100% assured that they're going to get these tumors. So this is, this is the kind of mouse they use. It's, it's kind of poor mice, you know, I, I feel for them. But this is what the scientific research in, in medicine uses typically as an experimental animal. So if you give them a, some kind of an influence that is more toxic, then presumably it will create the tumors in greater proportion. Uh, if you give them something that is in opposition to cancer, then it will delay their deaths or the growth of their tumors. So Reich took these CH4 mice, these cancer mice, put half of the uh, group into a control situation where nothing was done other than feeding and caring for them in, a, in the usual way, giving them plenty of food and water and so forth. And the other group also got the same treatment, but with an, an additional one hour a day, they were put into small-sized organ accumulators. These are organ accumulators that were sort of mouse-sized. You know, they're not really big. One of the things with the accumulator is you don't want it too big. You want it close enough to the wall the, the radiant effect from the walls will, will uh, be close to your skin. So this experiment, he showed the mice had 300% extension of their lifespan with the orgone accumulator, three times as long as the control group. Now, that experiment was replicated in more recent years by a physician, Richard Blasband, and a couple of Brazilian scientists. I can't remember their names right now, but it's all, it's all been published, and there's, the citations are in my, my book. And they got about 200% increase in longevity. Now, contrast that to what goes on today. If somebody has a new pharmaceutical drug and they talk about a 5% increase in longevity, it makes the news all over the world. You know, oh my God, 5% increase. Whoa, this is important. Oh, you know, make more of those pills, you know, charge people $100 a pill or whatever. And here you got the, the studies with the accumulator, 200%, 300% extension of life. The clinical studies on this, just as a general observation, the people I know who use the accumulator regularly, they live into 90, 100 years old or more. And I use an orgone energy accumulator and a blanket regularly. And, you know, it's, it's a, something where you sit inside of it a half an hour, 45 minutes a day at, at most. Or you can use an orgone blanket and you can bring that to bed with you, sleep under it. And I haven't been to a doctor, I guess, in about 50 years. I have very few colds or flu or anything like that. Sometimes I get down when I do some kind of long distance traveling in, in the airplanes and so on. But it's a miracle kind of thing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to call it, it isn't really a miracle. It's a scientifically proven thing that boosts your immune system. And whatever kind of problem you have, what is the immune system? Back in Reich's day, they didn't have the word immune system. They simply called it the resistance to disease. But now we got autoimmune problems, which is another kind of thing. So they, they, it isn't really resistance to disease. In some cases, your immune system, as they say, is overactive, 
Well, we would call this from Russia's point of view, an overcharge situation. In other words, you got too much energy. And he developed some steps and procedures to reduce that, which go back to some of the old school kind of medical therapy, such as hydrotherapy. In other words, if you have a lot of energy, too much energy, this can lead you into hypertension. But if you soak in the bath with some mineral salts or something, do that once every night, a lot of this overcharge, hypertension, uh, anxiety reactions, and so forth, fade away. Not, not in every case, but it can be helped by things like that. Water is, is something that Reich found absorbs the orgon energy. Whatever has an overcharge of energy, you dunk it in water, and it, it sort of calms it out. Similar to how if your hands are wet and you touch something that has an electrical charge or electrostatic charge, it sort of dissipates it right off. But yeah, there's a number of things from Reich's work on what he called the biopathies, these biopathic diseases, as he termed them, were bioenergetic in their basic structure. So that includes a lot of, a lot of the major degenerative illnesses that modern science has not been able to, to fathom. Right, right. And I wanted to ask you a little more about that orgone relationship with water because it's quite interesting. And I know you're aware of Dr. Gerald Pollack's work on structured water and some of the living water science that's being done out there. And I've heard you talk about healing springs, that the Native Americans used them and early American settlers picked this up too. And at a time in the past, we actually had maybe even hundreds of these natural healing springs or spas built on these natural places. And this is another aspect of our history that was shut down and erased, right? Yes, indeed. I have a short chapter on that in my accumulator handbook about living water. And of course, the term living water I got from Schauberger. And Schauberger was a genius in terms of the properties of water and and structuring water and getting the understanding of how when water is swirled in a vortex fashion, its structure is changed. And that has got some laboratory confirmation. Gerald Pollack with his easy water, EZ, exclusion zone water, this is a new scientific discovery and breakthrough that helps to add substance to the idea that water isn't merely just some dead chemical. It is a chemical to be sure, but there are energetic properties that infuse into water which can change its, its structure, its viscosity, its thermal reactivity, and all different kinds of properties of water can be modified by some different methods. One is swirling or vortexing the water. The other is exposing it to certain high dielectric materials, such as the nafion material that uh, Dr. Pollock uses. And I did a set of experiments which were published in the water journal that he is the editor of, where if you put the water inside an orgone energy accumulator, it develops spectral qualities and changes in structure that are identical in the same direction. For example, if you orgone charge water, will have a strong ultraviolet absorption, a strong ultraviolet absorption in the mid to far range UV between around oh approximately 200 to 300 nanometers, and that's in the invisible ultraviolet. If you look at the fluorescence of orgone-charged water, it is 
little bit higher, uh, longer wave frequencies, you wind up with a fluorescing effect from organ-charged water that's somewhere around 350 to 500 nanometers, 400, 500 nanometers. Now, that is a visible quality. It's the near UV and the blue frequencies. And this is something that Rock talked about, about the organ energy having this blue, dark blue color as seen in, in different natural contexts. I was able to prove it out using uh, standard methods of uh, UV and visible light spectroscopy. And I wrote this rather long paper. It's not cited in the accumulator book because this is only recent research. But if you go to my website, which is orgonelab.org, O-R-G-O-N-E lab.org, I give citations there. One can follow my work and my research from that website. It also asks you to, if you want to add your email to my uh, newsletter. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting work done on this issue of water structure. And I did a lot of this research myself and showed that the organ accumulator can create these kind of reactions as well, which is quite astonishing too, because it's by conventional skepticism, it's just an empty box, right? They say, oh, it's just a box, you know, but it isn't just a box. It does all these interesting things. Now, you mentioned the spas and the United States had dozens of hot spring natural healing spas, very much like what Germany and other places in Europe still have. They call them these healing spas of where they have mineral waters that come straight out of the ground and they, they mark it off with a, so that the water flows into a pool or in, into at least a basin of some kind. And if you sit and you rest inside these hot, mineral-rich waters, something goes on bioenergetically. It's not just a bunch of soup of chemicals. There's some kind of an energetic property of the water that has a healing effect. And this is a real thing. It's not some mystical new age kind of hypothesis. There are people all over the world who are flocking to these spas, and in some places they're privately owned and you have to pay money to get in there. But nevertheless, it's cheaper than hospitals and with a lot of really kind of remarkable things. I never was sick enough to test that out, but I do remember once I, uh, I had a strain in my hand from lifting a very, very heavy object, and it, afterwards it hurt. And every time I opened and closed my fist, it hurt really bad. And I tried all kinds of liniments and rub-ons things, and it, nothing ever really helped it. But I went into a, hot, a mineral hot spring somewhere in Utah, I believe it was, just as an overnight thing uh, traveling. And the guy who ran this hotel you know, there was this lovely hot spring up there. And I, I said, why don't you uh, advertise? He says, well, we can't advertise anymore. The Food and Drug Administration came here and they said they'd put me in jail if I said we had a healing hot spring. And he, apparently this was a place that had the signs healing hot spring for years and years. So I went up there and I, I rested in the water and I got up and walking, walking out. And suddenly I realized that this painful thing in my hand was totally gone and it never returned. Now, this is one of the things they always were advertised in the, in the older advertisements before the Food and Drug Administration was formed, or given police actions, I should say. You could find advertisements for, for healing springs all over the place, and it was something that marked the, the landscape of American 
society of, of the, U, the United States of America. And they were all over the place. Many of them originally used by the Native Americans, as you say. And they all were shut down to the point where, I'm trying to remember, there's one famous one somewhere in Kentucky, or I don't remember exactly where, where it's the old building, very beautiful old building, where people would stay, get a room and so on, while they were soaking in the, in the baths. It's like a historical monument. And you can go there and you can look at this health spa like a tourist in a roped off tour guide. And you can look at the water, but you're not allowed to go in it. <laughs> you're forbidden from going in the healing water. You can look at it, though. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm laughing, but it's it's instead we've got these polished chrome steel and white sparkling white hospitals everywhere. And it's obscene. It is really obscene what has happened. I could add to that. Maybe you've heard of Harry Hoxie. Yeah, the name does sound familiar, but give us a reminder. Yeah. Harry Hoxie was somebody who had, from his father, inherited a recipe for healing from Native American herbs. And he was an un- he was not an educated man. He was, uh, I can't remember what he did, but before he got involved in, in using this, uh, this Native American herbal preparation, but he started making this available to people and found that all kinds of skin problems and even cancers were cured, or I should say that the tumors disappeared when people used the recipe of these herbs. And he set up a hospital and people flocked to it and it got known all around the United States. And at some point in the 1920s, there must have been about uh, a dozen of the Hoxie clinics all around the United States. And they were using this preparation and a few other things, of course, for healing of cancer. And they were all shut down by the FDA, every last one of them. Right, right. Yeah, uh, that's where it came up as we had a previous show where we went down the list of alternative therapies for cancer or these stories that you hear. And that was a big one. SEAC T was another one. Uh, and there's no shortage of them really when you start digging, which is so crazy. But to uh, jump over to the cloud buster, because it's kind of related to water, because it actually needs to be grounded in living water to work. You've had firsthand experience with this. I've heard you talk about the results. It's pretty amazing that this technology can just end a drought. I've seen videos of demonstrations. It's as real as can be. And I guess you might have even made a lake in the Sahara Desert. Is that right? Well, all of that is true. When I read Reich's work, the first things I did was to build accumulators and study it. And I also got this Reichian therapy. I went into this Reichian therapy, which helped me to see things more clearly. Let's put it that way. It's an emotional release therapy method where you, any kind of bottled up emotion you have, anger, rage, crying, whatever, you, you vent it out on the couch in a controlled environment with a, a therapist who knows what they're doing. So I had that therapy and wow, it made me feel so much better. I could breathe deeper, see clear. My goals in life were, were achievable. Suddenly I, I lost all the pessimism about that kind of thing. So I wound up going to, back to the university. I had graduated high school and, and never went to, to the university, but I, I, I decided I want to do that. So I was a late bloomer. I went back to the university, and uh, I was interested in Reich, and I told my professors, I want to study this because if Reich is correct, then 
it's a major, major breakthrough. So I found a couple of professors at the University of Kansas who are interested in this also. And they, they said, yes, let's do this. And so we developed a research protocol to experimentally, tentatively test the most heretical ideas. Why go halfway? <laughs> it's like, well, let's take the, the most outlandish thing that he claimed, which is the Cloudbuster, and test it out. Over one summer, I built this Cloudbuster, and it was tested out over a period of two years, in 1977 to 1978. And we tested it out for effects upon rainfall and cloud cover over the area near the university. And lo and behold, it, it, it showed a, an effect, a profound effect for boosting of clouds and increasing in rainfall within about 24 hours of the operation. And it wasn't just isolated to the university area. It was over the whole state of Kansas. So it had a very wide-ranging influence. As Reich said, it's a triggering device that can trigger influences. And he was arguing that it isn't so much a powerful effect of the device itself. It's the atmosphere has this energy continuum in it that is excitable. And as the energy moves and the atmosphere moves, it's like there's this bioenergetic substrate which governs weather. And he worked out a whole science on this, Reich did. So I tested it out. And by the way, I also studied with a number of people who had years earlier studied Reich and some who knew Reich. And so I, I was in a good position to learn from the horse's mouth directly the, the methods and techniques and got very good result. And it, published it as a master's thesis. It got me the master of science degree. And wow, we thought we were in on the ground floor of some breakthrough into the universities on this. And I put in actually another year of research, making new findings and documentation of this phenomenon. Reich made all kinds of experiments and published them on his cloudbusting work, but he, he never had the access to the kind of research instrumentation, such as weather stations and right on site and different kinds of electrometers and so on to test out what was going on. Well, I did while I was at the university, so I was able to do a lot of things like that. And what happened was is that the people at the National Academy got wind of what I had done. And instead of saying, wow, this is great, how can we support your work? They called the dean of the university and told them, if you guys want to get one more penny of research funding from the National Academy, you'll find a way to get rid of that DeMeo study. <laughs> and so I was called into the office one day and all these somber professors, you know, some of whom were my supporters, told me, well, we can't support this work openly anymore. So I was dejected, but I wound up doing another study for my PhD on deserts and desertification. It was actually a breakthrough study of its own. Actually, I documented what was the biggest natural, real climate change that had occurred since the end of the last ice age, which was not one in temperature, but one in rainfall parameters, which created the big Sahara and other Asian deserts that are connected to it what I call Saharasia. And that study is still not widely known because it's extremely controversial in and of itself. Yes, I actually figured maybe we could touch on that just because the subtitle for 
that book is the 4000 BCE origins of child abuse, sex, repression, warfare, and social violence in the deserts of the old world. And it seems pretty epic. And definitely Reich was very much about human nature and re-establishing what that's all about as opposed to the violent, you know, we're just primitive apes in man suits now and we still have these reptilian brains and it's all violence and and scarcity that's not necessarily the case is what your study seems to indicate well it very clearly indicated it and it also showed that the origins of human violence is most identifiable starting around 4000 to 3500 BC within these big large desert areas which prior to 4000 BC were very lush, wet garden environments. And, you know, I'm not alone in this. There are a couple of other researchers who have done research on this, a guy named Griffins, Rian Eisler, Maria Gambudis. They all talked about how the earliest human societies were peaceful, egalitarian. Violence isn't the natural human condition. But if you look around today, it, it seems to be. So what's going on there? What happened around this 4,000 marker date? And uh, what I showed is that the archaeological and paleoclimatological evidence shows massive environmental changes, which then affected the earliest human societies by starvation, by famine, which created massive migrations, massive deaths the abandonment of the earliest city-states and villages. And you can see the results of this in some of the drylands of the Sahara society called the Garamantes, which very well-developed civil civilization, and today there's nothing left of it. Some places in Arabia are like that. The old Sabaean society, which built the first big, huge dam for water irrigation and had a big productive trade society based on agriculture and, and so on totally wiped out once the, the climate went from wet to dry. So my work, Saharasia, did a global study on that basis from the historical and the archaeological point of view, but also from the more contemporary point of view, there was a, a part of my study which was 1,000, over 1,000 different cultures from around the world plotted on the world map and using the, the databases from the ethnographers and, and anthropologists that showed that all the characteristics of violent societies were at their peak worst condition within this existing Sahara Desert and the deserts of the Middle East and Central Asia. And you can think of, for example, the Mongols or the Huns, or, you know, sad to say, the modern Islamic societies are the carriers of the most violent cultural conditions. And just think about how they treat their women is one example. And by violent, you know, in the in the Reichian sense, we're talking about the most horribly sex repressive cultures. Now the early peaceful societies, as well as the one, the ones that survived into relatively recent years, were not sex repressive, nor were they licentious. They had no pornography or wife swapping. They weren't screwing right and left, uh, everybody. It was a very orderly, happy society, but they had a very permissive society with respect to sexuality. They didn't have, and this is where it gets controversial, they didn't have homosexuals. There weren't any. And it wasn't because they killed them or something like that. It's just that 
they allowed all the young people like Romeo and Juliet to have their love affairs. And this was looked, the adults looked back upon those early times with much uh, pleasure, as opposed to today, where early puberty is one of great anxiety and terror and fear and sadness. I mean, sexual exploitation and pornography and so on. You know, you, as uh, Reich pointed out, the societies that have the bizarre, upset kind of sexual behavior, they are the sex repressive ones in the sense that the love affair of Romeo and Juliet is pretty much suppressed everywhere. You have to realize that in the original Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet were about 16 years old. They were not older teens. They were just at the point of puberty. I mean, why does nature put that strong, strong impulse into young people and then societies repress it? And that's where the chaos comes from. Yes, I was going to say, it's definitely a chaotic environment and not really the best one for going through those stages of puberty. And not that I think the sexuality stuff is nearly as interesting as the cloud busting or ogron energy itself, but I guess I would be inclined to, to push back a little bit. I mean, I'm no expert, but I've heard people saying that there's a scientific basis that homosexuality does go back uh, about as far as humanity goes back. And you're saying that maybe, no, it's, that's not the case. Well, there are, there are the more recent collection of peaceful societies, which I was able to identify in the cross-cultural literature, had no homosexuals. That was the Trobriand Islanders of Melanesia. It was the Maria peoples of, of Eastern India the Mosu people of Western China. Is it possible that maybe it just wasn't written about because it was so accepted and not a thing even worth documenting because it was just such a, a non-issue? Well, then one has to presume that anthropologists are so blinded and blinkered that they somehow miss this, which I don't think is the case. I mean, if you look at the record of where they're talking about other kinds of sexual behavior, they're pretty good at, at recording things. I mean, I mean, we know that homosexuality exists in most all of the modern civilizations, but also does adolescent sexual repression. And I'm, I'm not arguing for pedophilia here by any means. Pedophiles are sick people. So it's a, this whole idea of adults having a preoccupation in the sexuality of their children to the point of meddling with it or wanting to participate in it, this is a product of the sex-repressive cultures. Right, right. It's definitely a dicey conversation, but it's, it's a, a given that kids around 16 are going through puberty, and yet we have this abstinence-only attitude, and we put blinders on, and this causes all kinds of problems. I mean, they're getting all backed up. I mean, we know. We know this. And it should be addressed, definitely. There's got to be some way to address it. I'm probably not the guy to even... Go down that road. Well, my study, you know, this is another book that I would recommend is, is uh, my study, Saharasia. That's the title of the book, like Sahara and Asia linked together, Saharasia. Or Reich's book, The Function of the Orgasm. He was the top clinician to do that. All you know, Reich's sexual revolution was a very soft sexual revolution. It was not what we see going on today. I mean, today we got this genderism stuff where if you use the wrong pronoun or like Rowling, you know, you criticize the, the gay mafia, which it is a real mafia nowadays. You can't say anything critical, 
even of their castration agendas. They're, the surgical castration of children, my God, this is insane. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier, and I didn't really say anything, but now that it's come up again, I mean, there's definitely a lot of agenda-driven stuff in this area that you're talking about, but how often does that really happen, the surgical castration of children? Well, it's, when you talk about a child, who, a boy, who says, well, I'm, I'm feeling like a girl, well, a lot of young kids say such things, or a girl says, I feel more like a boy, I wish I was a boy, or something like that. When the push of puberty comes, 95% of those cases, those kids suddenly become the boy and the girl that their biology is determining. But the homosexual activist groups want to suppress that by giving the prepubertal children the hormone-suppressing drugs. And that's what they do. They give them hormone-suppressing drugs and then a brainwash where those kids are told, oh, you're not your natural biological sex. And after they turn to the age of consent, the hormone drugs are going to be supplemented with a castration surgical operation. Now, it's not a high number of, of kids right now, but these things never remain static. If you go back to the 1800s in America, only a small percentage of Jews were circumcising their children, but it caught on with the medical profession. They can make a lot of money from it, and they don't really give a damn about the biological naturalness of the foreskin or of genitalia today. So this subset of the, of the medical profession made a lot of money and it peaked out where 80% of all American boys were being circumcised around the time of the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a damn shame. Damn shame for sure. So it went from zero or near zero to 80% within about a hundred years. So I, I look at this stuff that's going on now and I have to ask, I feel I, I'm obligated to say something in defense of, of the kid's natural biological sexuality. You know, what is really offensive is that if you dare say these kinds of things too publicly, that suddenly you get stomped on. You know, I mean, what happened to Rowling? What's going on? I know not every homosexual person agrees with this stuff. There's a lot of gay men I know, or at least a few, who are deeply offended by this transgender stuff. And you know, of course, they're, they're taking over women's sports. These men, biological men, they're stronger, faster. They run in the women's sports. They say, I'm a woman, even though I look like a man with a beard and everything. And they win all the medals. And it's a catastrophe for women. But they're just not aware of it because most of the reports on this are censored from the mainstream media. Rowling and so on, she's not the first one to be banished from the internet platforms for daring to say something politically incorrect. You know, I'm 70 years old now. I mean, how old do I have to be before I can dare to speak out about, about these things? Political correctness is killing us. It is, it is. But hey, I say the best policy is doctor, leave those kids alone, you know? And I think they should. And I did want to ask you about the Cloudbuster a little more because the conversation is connected to the UFO question. Not only did Reich think that they were somehow attracted to Oregon or the use of his Cloudbuster. You can kind of confirm that from your own experience, I understand. And I'm just curious what you think is going on here. It's very odd that these two things would converge. Well, Reich came to the conclusion that 
he was working out in Arizona doing a desert greening experiment. And by the way, I'll come back to my own desert greening experiments momentarily. But Reich was observing, first of all, that he could he could bring rain in the Arizona deserts and restore a lot of the grass growth in areas where it was just barren. And while he was doing this work, he observed UFOs. He observed these luminous objects were silent, moving. He made photographs of them, showing that the tracks that they made in the night sky were different from the stars. And this was all before the satellites. There weren't any satellites up there nowadays. Nowadays, you look up, you see things moving. You don't know what it is because it could be a satellite. And most of the things you see are probably satellites. But Reich was seeing these things. He was documenting them. He made a few photographs of things. And he claimed that they were unidentified flying objects. He had read some of the early books, like that of Kehoe, Ruppelt's book. If you read Ruppelt's book, Colonel Ruppelt was an Air Force officer who was ordered to make a study of the UFO phenomenon for the U.S. Air Force. And it was called Project Blue Book. If you know anything about the UFO history, then everybody knows about Project Blue Book. And in there, he talks about a scientist in the Arizona deserts who was making all these observations and documentation. And that's Wilhelm Reich. He doesn't mention Reich by name, but it seems almost certain that this was Reich. Because he was there, he was making the observations, he was contacting the different military bases and, and headquarters to try and tell them about what he was seeing. And he also pointed the cloudbuster at these things, and they tended to dim out and move away. The cloudbuster device works on the organ energy principles. He was arguing that the UFOs must be powered by organ energy, or the ether, let's call it by the older name that the ether orgone was somehow what was powering these UFOs. So, wow, this is a loaded group of, of questions, but it, it also is a loaded group of opportunities and possibilities that somehow orgone energy functions might be underlying gravity, might be underlying some kind of a motor force in nature. And Reich also built a small little device. He called it the orgone motor. And he got this small little motor to turn by using the organ accumulator. So that all this stuff is published. We have another book called Heretic's Notebook, which uh, carries several papers on this subject, including one about my own personal UFO observations. Because I've seen, when I was out doing work in the deserts of, of uh, Arizona, also uh, overseas in Israel and, and in Africa, doing it, this work in some of the most desolate places in the planet. And you could see, uh, you could occasionally see these things. And sometimes I've seen things that had moved in non-Newtonian ways, you know, with right angle turns or with disc-like shapes that tumbled end over end like a plate, a saucer being uh, flipped. Things of that nature which didn't make any sense, especially the silent nature of it. We've seen that here in Oregon, for God's sake. So things like that looked like a big uh, transport airplane. I mean, at least the lights. You'd think it was a transport airplane from the lights, but then it flies directly overhead and there's no sound, no sound at all. So what's that? That's, uh, it's not, I mean, it's too slow to be a satellite. It's too big to be a satellite, but totally silent. Now, of course, I'm not the only one to see these kind of things. With the advent of the cell phone, all kinds of images are being photographed right and left. 
and you probably have seen those uh, videos that were released by the Air Force of some chases by high-performance jets trying to catch up to these things. So, you know, there's there's an opportunity for the researchers uh, who have an interest to learn about what Reich did. And the whole thing that I, I found with the ether is that what I'm arguing for in my book on the dynamic ether of cosmic space is that the ether is a material. It moves matter because of a f- basic frictional interaction and that it vortexes. It moves in a vortex spiral by its own very nature. And in so doing, it grabs onto matter and therefore you've got the gravitational vortex, gravitational properties, which come directly from the the ether's properties and its motions. So for example, gravity here on Earth is due to the to a vortex motion of the ether coming down from space down to the Earth's surface and carrying matter with it. That's that's the theory. So I, I outlined the evidence as best as I could in that book. And I think there's a number of, of scientists who have come to very similar kind of conclusions based upon their own independent work. Indeed. Yeah. It's a fascinating subject that definitely needs more study. Well, man, this has been really fun. You've done so much great work. Both of these books are great front to back breakdowns of these energies and their functions and the history of keeping them out of mainstream science. Are there any new experiments or areas where you're going to be focusing your talents or attentions to next? Well, as you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm investigating this orgone motor question that Reich did. Another breakthrough scientist, in my opinion, is the work of Townsend Brown. Maybe you've heard of him, the guy with the, with the gravitors. I'm doing a little bit of an investigation of that. And also on the water structuring question. So those three areas take up what free time I have at the laboratory here and I think are at the cutting edge, really, of, of modern scientific research. Absolutely. Although uh, you, w- you wouldn't know it by reading the mainstream journals. <laughs> right. Well, hey, if you crack that flying saucer case, we'll have to do this again. <laughs> I'll come visit you and we can do it in person. I love it. I love it. Well, man, I really appreciate the time and your efforts. Before we go, do remind the people about your website, the books, or any appearances or demonstrations you might have coming up that they could attend. Yeah, the websites, my research website is orgonelab.org, O-R-G-O-N-E, lab, L-E-B, dot org. And the name of my laboratory is the Orgone Biophysical Research Lab. We might have seminars, maybe a webinar, which would outreach to a lot more people, or at least something along those lines. There's a, a web link on the orgonelab.org website on events that people can consult, but better that they get on our email list where we send out these notifications from time to time. We have a book selling and instrument selling website, which is how I pay the bills, and that's naturalenergyworks.net naturalenergyworks.net. And gosh, I think the the two books of mine I would most recommend now, and which are the two most popular ones, is the Orgone Accumulator Handbook and the Dynamic Ether of Cosmic Space. Those two books, I think, cover a tremendous territory on this new energy research that I believe it's going to change the world for the better. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, they are a great one-two punch of ether and organ. And thanks for sending them out and for the time today. I am honored to have spent uh, a little bit of time picking your brain. And I wish you the best, man. Thanks again and keep doing what you do. Well, thank you very much for having me, Greg. And we'll uh, look forward to seeing this on the pod. <laughs> for sure. Cheers. You too. Bye-bye. And once again, boom goes the dynamite. James DeMeo doing what a James DeMeo does best. And I have been trying to get this interview for a long time now because there seems to only be a few good options for public speakers when it comes to Reich's work, especially ones who have tested these things out experimentally firsthand. If you want to hear more on the UFO side of Reich's work, which is definitely fascinating, check out an older show I did with Peter Robbins, because it makes a nice compliment to this one. And honestly, in both cases, the conversation does drift into sexuality, particularly the sex-repressed culture that we live in and how it affects children. And it kind of makes sense, because if this energy is connected to sexuality, you would expect there to be some kind of peak or increase in it during the years of puberty. And maybe our sex-repressed culture nerfs that energy. And I could see an angle where it's very important to manage and cultivate that energy during those years of puberty, because maybe that has effects for the rest of your life. And we're talking about how organ seems to be tied to health. Maybe it's tied to the immune system somehow. The body and these energy systems is very holistic. Everything's not so compartmentalized. So if this is an energy stream that comes through humans and it is tied to sexuality, maybe it's worth a mention. It is thorny stuff, but organ is called organ because Reich thought it was somehow connected to the orgasm. And one has to admit the orgasm is a weird thing. It's a pretty unparalleled feeling. And I don't think we have a sufficient explanation. Maybe it is a mechanism that lets a little more of that energy from the unseen side of reality in, and maybe that entangles with our physical bodies, and that's where we get that jolt. But, you know, sex is often considered a mechanism for altered states or higher levels of consciousness with Tantra and all that. So I don't find this shocking or unusual that interviews about Reich get to these places, but number one, it's not the most interesting part of the work to me, and number two, we've had a lot of guests segue into thorny topics lately, largely without being asked, which I don't care. Guests are free to speak their mind on this show, but the issue is the audience cannot hold me or the show accountable for things I didn't ask about and didn't plan to talk about. That's the only thing that bothers me. Don't write me any letters about this stuff. I felt like I was on the ropes for a lot of 2019, and I'm over it. None of that in 2020. Honestly, we've been around too long to still be explaining this. But I had been trying to get this interview with James for a long time because the Oregon Accumulator Handbook is just so great. It's honestly the blueprints, and his experiments with Cloudbusters are also pretty damn credible. And oh yeah, he's also written a new book on ether physics. I mean, come on, people, this is some of the most exciting stuff to me right now. 
I do think the world is changing and this stuff is going to have to come out. And I want to be ahead of the game. I want us to all understand that, yes, this is real. And if we can get past the wondering, and if you were to get the handbook, you could build your own devices. No electrical components required, right? While everybody else is stuck in denial or still trying to wrap their heads around these things, I want us to understand. So that's what's important to me. The rest of these shows can talk about impeachment and Russiagate and QAnon. I'm trying to work on a different level. Of course, today, James wanted to spend some time talking about transgender men dominating sports and children who are being manipulated into gender transformations through hormones or surgeries or whatever, and J.K. Rowling's Twitter censorship. Fine. I don't really see those as major issues that affect a ton of people. I mean, this other stuff affects everybody, but there's probably something in it that is definitely agenda-driven. It's just not a priority to me. Definitely not as high on the list as natural terraforming rods that attract UFOs and blueprints to healing boxes. But James did say afterwards that he appreciated the freedom to speak openly, and if I am going to run a show where guests are pretty much allowed to go off topic into these sorts of things, you're not going to be able to hang on every word or even every guest. If your love for THC is going to be that fragile, you might as well stop listening now because you're going to be rattled sooner than later. It's just the nature of this game. This is a show for people with more sense than that. If you know what I mean, you'll take it as a compliment. But I did like the majority of the show today. I kind of wanted to get more into the cosmic ether material, but it's James's experiments that are the most unique material he has, and so I wanted to give that as much time as it needed. In the Plus show, we did focus more on the Cloudbuster, and it definitely blows my mind. The man made it rain three times in three different geographical areas, and he made lakes in the goddamn Sahara. That's nuts. But between James DeMeo and Trevor James Constable, who also did this, I'm pretty damn convinced. A couple other things we talked about in the Plus show would be the deadly organ energy, the sort of inverse energy that is radioactive that comes into play. We also talked about the Garden Seed Charger Planter Box. I mean, if this stuff helps seeds germinate, why aren't we making planter boxes out of it and getting better yields on our crops? But we also talked about organ accumulators in our highly charged electrostatic environment these days. The Wi-Fi signals, the phone signals. This is stuff Reich didn't really consider when working with organ. And then we talked about the organ motor. James's light bulb study and which ones are the healthiest, eclipses and energy and the connections there, and a couple other things in the realm of cosmic ether. So I'm psyched to get this one out. Please let James know you appreciate his contribution to the secret sciences if you do. You know, I think one of the big problems in this area is that there's so many different terms. The mainstream says there's nothing there, so when half a dozen people discover it, they all give this energy a different name. Is it organ? Is it ether? Are those the same thing? I'm still not 100%.
But these applications are exciting to me. It's my faith in these modalities that makes me more open to even something like Tartaria. Because a lot of these ether-based or over-unity or electrogravitic devices, a lot of them are lo-fi or analog. I mean, an organ accumulator, again, doesn't even need to be plugged in. So when there's a theory out there that a civilization used steeples or architecture to well up this energy, well, I think that's totally possible. Also, you might have noticed that I didn't ask him anything about organite. And that's because James has said over and over again that he doesn't think organite is a thing. He doesn't like these pendants and these organite paperweights that people make and place around their home. He doesn't think that they do anything. So I figured I could just wait till now and then tell you that. But I would say of all the cool shit that listeners have made or sent to me over the years, organite is the number one thing. You'll see a pendant that I wear. That's organite. I have this little thing on my microphone that you can see in the joint sessions. That's organite. Little pyramids all over the office. I appreciate these gifts. I don't know if they do anything, but they remind me of Reich's work anyway, and so I'm into it. And that does remind me, if you have your own thing going on, if you are a craftsman of some kind, or you sell a product, or you're an artisan of some particular discipline or craft, and you want THC+, well, hit me up. Maybe we can barter. Maybe we can cut out that money middleman and just do a trade for trade. I like all kinds of interesting stuff, and I definitely appreciate artists and uh, people who make things by hand. I find it impressive, especially in 2020. Just throwing that out there. And also, speaking of the joint session, I guess this month we'll do it on the 20th. It's a Monday. (laughs) And man, I was pretty tired and still kind of sick on the last one. I guess it worked out that it was kind of short and a lot of lurkers out there didn't really want to call in and talk to me. Over 100 people listening, but only a couple wanted to talk. So let's do this thing. Don't be nervous now. You know, we're all friends here. But we'll see. And with that, I'm getting out of here. I hope we all learned some stuff today. Big thanks to James for his time and his work. I've done my part. Your move, ether deniers, fake physics suppliers, and the whole damn scientific cabal of liars. Your fucking move. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class but they've overcome their shyness now we're calling them your highness and the world screams save me thc they destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect between the only people left 